I'm Maserati E. And I'm Chris Redlitz. Welcome to The Last Mile Radio. We're paving the road to success. No lie. I've been on a mission for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I've been on a mission for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. Hey, paving the road to success. I'm paving the road to be my best. I'm paving the road to success. Chris, what up, what up, what up? Well, we talk a lot on this show to people who are going through a journey of rehabilitation and transformation. We talk a lot about doing the work. But these are people who, you know, admittedly have committed a crime and gone through that process. But today we're going to be talking to someone who served 21 years in prison who did not commit a crime and had to endure that as a 17-year-old who was coerced into a guilty plea and had to endure that term in prison. That is crazy, man. That That's something I feel is just mind-blowing. Again, like, you know, I know what it feels like firsthand at the age of 17 to have to become incarcerated, but I know what it feels like to have to experience that from my actions. You know what I mean? I put myself in that situation. So, like, that that's kind of crazy to think about having to endure that, you know what I mean, without doing anything and then being coerced into doing that, being forced into doing that, you know, like it, that, that reminds me of like the exonerated five in New York. You know what I mean? Like what took place with them. Something very similar. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the doc by Ava, New- by Ava DuVernay. Sure. Uh, when they see us, that was, that one was incredible. You know what I mean? I think that was a pretty accurate depiction of what that experience must have been like a similarity if we will right of course not exactly the same but like to me that's mind-blowing because again like I understand that experience for something that I did so like knowing that I did something to get me in that situation that kind of I guess helped me endure that was like my 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 weight if we will to get through it and the times like it felt like it could make me float away you know what I mean so in the times where I felt like I can get lost in this thing or, or even feel like real down on myself being in prison as if like I, I was a victim because it was very dehumanizing and, and, and very oppressive. But like I, I battled, I guess, a victim state of mind because it was like I put myself there. Yeah. So it was like I'm serving the consequences and, and this is just what comes with the consequences of my actions. You know what I mean? And that's one of the things that kind of helped me endure that. Not saying that that made anything that happened in there. Okay. You know what I mean? But that was for myself something that helped me get that. So if I if I didn't have that state of mind, I don't know how I could have responded to that. Like, that's one of those type of experiences. I feel like it's either really going to, like, make you or break you. You know what I mean? Because I've seen people firsthand, like, lose their mind in prison. Like, people that was cool a week ago and now today, like, they are not the same. Like, they literally are a completely different person due to the traumatic responses of enduring prison. You know what I mean? So it's like to come out on the other end sound-minded, to come out on the other end positive, like, that's that's crazy to think, you know, and, and, and to me, that's amazing and very inspirational based on, uh, again, like it, it is a lot of people that don't respond in that type of way. It takes a lot of strength. And especially if you really didn't do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the craziest part about it all. If you really didn't do it. Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, he is an amazingly thoughtful person who's done a lot uh, since he's been out. Uh, and we'll talk about a lot about uh, what he's done with him in the conversation. But I remember a few years ago, I was in an event and um, it was uh, put on by the Innocence Project. And they mm-hmm. had 11 exonerees that were all on death row. And to see them all so positive and not have sort of this anger, which was really kind of amazing that they had gone through this many, many years, some decades inside prison, and yet they were all very positive and thoughtful and doing really positive things. Um, as is our guest, Jerome Dixon, who will be talking to uh, about his experience, about what led him to prison and also what he's doing since. But even, you know, what led him to prison is really disturbing. Absolutely. That, that, that's scary. You know what I mean? That, that's scary because, unfortunately, that's something that, that takes place, I think, more often than we may know. And he you was, know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, he was coerced 
you know, as a 17-year-old, uh, 25 hours without representation, coerced into a guilty plea that really, right. um, you know, prevented him from going to trial and really was his, you know, the reason why he served so much time because he was coerced into a guilty plea and that, you know, hopefully those things are changing and he's working on those changes. We'll talk to him about. But that is amazing in this day and age that you can still have those type of things going on, um, right. especially for people that are juveniles who really need representation to be coerced into a guilty plea at that point. Definitely, man. I feel like what he's doing is kind of defying what I feel the intention behind those type of things are. And I feel like the intent behind or one of the intentions behind, you know, those type of actions, if we will, I feel like is to keep people contained and, and to internalize self limitations, if we will. Right. When you treat it a certain way, I feel like the response to that sometimes is you believe it, you know, when they tell you what you are, sometimes people believe it. So when they tell you, you ain't nothing and they're going to treat you as such, sometimes you believe it. And that's one thing that I've seen. So to not believe it and defy those odds, you know, it, it really is so impactful. Because one thing I know for sure, like being incarcerated, like and being around people, you hear so many people say they didn't do it. Like, we're going to keep it real. You know what I mean? You hear a hell of people say they didn't do it. And then don't get me wrong. Some people, like, you could feel it. Like, nah, I don't, I, I, I don't believe Brett really did it or whatnot. You feel what I'm saying? So, like, I, I think people respond to that kind of stuff different. Like, you, you know, so I think the way that his positivity probably impacted people and people probably definitely in their heart of hearts believe that he was actually innocent. I'm pretty sure he inspired a lot of people from behind them walls to kind of look at their own situation a little different, which ultimately caused them to move a little different. You know what I mean? So I, I can't wait to get into this one. I know this finna get deep. Definitely had to get your pad and pad for sure. And when we come back, we're gonna be chopping it up with Jerome Dixon right here on the last mile radio. Stay tuned. Yes, 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 we are back, we are back. You are tuned in to the Last Mile Radio right here on SiriusXM. Chris is about to go down yet again. Who we got in the building today, man? We have someone very special to all of us. Jerome Dixon is joining us here in the Last Mile Radio with a really compelling story. Jerome, welcome to the Last Mile Radio. Thank you both for having me. Well, you, uh, we met, you know, this, this whole uh, community around criminal justice reform is a pretty tight-knit community, and we met recently through our mutual friend, Jason Flom, shout out to Jason, at the uh, Live Nation event we recently did in Los Angeles, and uh, you were nice enough to say, I'll come on the Last Mile Radio to tell your story, because it's something that people really need to hear. You know, it's, it's something that we're dealing with in our society today. And, um, you know, Jason's involved in the Innocence Project, which you were very involved in, and we'll get into that story. But it'd be great to take it back to the early days of your life to see where this uh, trajectory went and the issues around we have really with, you know, um, young folks in underserved communities that are dealing with issues that kind of led to your incarceration. I, so, I said too, Chris, young black folks in the hoods, in the ghettos. Well, I'm leaving that up to you to say, but that's what it is. For real. That's what it is. Let's call it what it is. So take us back and tell us about that journey, which led to your incarceration. Then we'll want to get into sort of how you resolve that over time, because you served a long time in prison dealing with being an innocent man. Sure. Um, I grew up during the time when MC Hammer was dominating the charts. Too legit to uh, quit. All, always, always. And uh, I was his little mini-me. Shout out to MC Hammer on the board of directors for the last mile. <laughs> Shout no out, doubt. Hammer. And um, I, I come from a big family. There's eight of us in all. There's six sisters and one brother. And I'm the baby with a twin. Wow. And, oh, wow. And, um, you know, I, I'm the only person in my family that has tasted the system just to put it in perspective mm. so but i was the typical rebellious rambunctious child growing up um and i grew up during the time when crack was you know at the height of its pandemic and it was devastating a lot of families yep and the area that i lived in was infested with drugs 
crack. And there was a murder that occurred in the area that I was at. And um, I was picked up for this murder at 17. Hmm. And um, I was brought to the police station. And I was held in police custody for 25 hours, at which point I was told to um, give them a story, a story that was not true. Mm. And that story wind up being a confession, which led to me being convicted for a murder that I didn't do. And you're there with no attorney, no parents, nobody, no adult no communication to the outside. You're there sort of being worn down in a sense. Correct. For, for 25 hours, you know, wow. just, just imagine, you know, I don't know if any of you have children, but just yep. imagine your 17 year old child. Absolutely. You know, law enforcement, they say, you know, we want to talk to you and you listen, you right. think that they have your best interests at heart. And I did. And the first seven hours of that 25 hour ordeal, I believe that they were on my side. Going into that 14th hour, that, you know, that calm demeanor approach became very authoritative and aggressive. You know, going into that 24th hour, it was a different ballgame. In that 25th hour, I was nothing more but an empty shell of a child. Mm. And in in that 25th hour, just to put it in perspective, I called home finally in the 25th hour. And I was so empty inside. My mother couldn't even recognize my voice. I remember listening to the phone in the background at my, at my mom's place. She passed the phone to my sister and said, there's somebody on the line. Says this, it's a Jerome. But this not, does not sound like Jerome. Mm-hmm. My sister then took the phone, said, hello, who is this? I said, it's Jerome. They have me downtown for murder. Wow. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear as the saga continues, what happened next? What happened next was, um, based on the confession that I gave, uh, I was appointed a public defender and my public defender had said to me that based on my confession alone, I can't win this case. And so she said that the district attorney had a great deal for me for first-degree murder, three counts of robbery and assault with a deadly weapon, and that I should take this deal and be sent to the California Youth Authority for six years for first-degree murder, three counts of robbery, and assault with a deadly weapon. They're telling me, they being my public defenders, telling me one thing, and then they're telling my parents something else. What were they telling your parents? They were telling my parents that I confessed to this crime. And I'm telling my mom and my dad, no, I didn't do it. And it's, you know, you, you're, you know, I was in a pickle, right. you know, a hard, a hard place. Yeah. And I had to figure out at 17 what my best choice should be. And at that time, my only choice was to take the six-year deal to the California Youth Authority. And I did. Do I regret that? Absolutely. But they left me with no other choice. Six months into that committed deal, I was brought back to court. That deal was vacated, and I was now being tried as an adult. Still 16 years old? No, 17. No, now I'm 18. 18, okay. Wow. 18 years of age. But this is after, this after judge hits the gavel, your sentence now... They pretty much like, nope, psych, just kidding. That's right. We changed our mind. That's now right. we're going to hit you with some more time. I was in the California Youth Authority with a youth authority number, 62995 was wow. my YA number. And if you went down at 16, at this point, you already down two years? Correction, I went down at 17. 17. So you already down like a year at this point? No, I'm down six months. Wow. Six months after the conviction. Mm. They like psych. That's right. That is nuts. And so now... The same public defender is telling me that the uh, district attorney wants me to cooperate with the office and that I should give up names and whereabouts of my co-defendants. And my response to the district attorney is, I don't have any names and I don't know any whereabouts. And she said, well, this is what's going to happen. 
you're either going to go to trial, you will lose based on your confession and you will receive the maximum sentence of 50 years to life. Or you can plead to a lesser from a first degree to a second degree and you'll receive an 18 year to life sentence. The choice mm -hmm. is yours. You choose your form of cancer is what she told me. Again, at 18, illiterate to the laws, what do I do? My only choice was to choose the lesser, the 18 as opposed to the 50 years. And so I chose 18 years to life for second degree murder and was sent back to the youth authority. This time I had an M number, M9523. And when I turned 23, I was transferred from the youth authority, Chajeri and Chad in Stockton. I was transferred mm -hmm. there to DVI and Tracy. And at which point I was just ushered through, you know, the adult correctional institutions. So you, you did this plea deal. You're an innocent man. The system, basically your public defender is saying this is a better deal which happened so frequently in this system that we have, that there is a reluctance to go to trial, even though you're an innocent man and there's no evidence to prove that you did this. But there is this overhanging threat, in a sense, that you're going to get the maximum sentence. So you enter prison with this over your head. How do you deal with that as a young man, knowing that you're innocent, realizing that you're going to have to serve who knows how long, right? In this system, right. they say 18 years of life, but I know people have gone in front of the board six or seven times. Right. It's right. seven to life. You know what I mean? Right. That's right. So there's no guarantee you're ever going to get out. How do you rationalize that well, every day? Number one, I also want to add to that what the district attorney told me when I was sentenced. He said, your honor, he won't even make it out alive. Wow. Oh, God. Wow. This is what you're telling a 17, 18 year old child who has never been inside of an institution. You're not going to make it out alive. And just to reframe, what year was this? 1990. Okay. Mm. So, just so people are aware, the, the prison system at that time was dramatically more violent. Right. Oh, definitely. Nobody was virtually no one's getting out as lifers. Correct. Right? So true. <clears throat> I know that when we started Last Mile 14 years ago, before Jerry Brown came in, there was like a 2% chance of lifers getting out. Mm -hmm. That's changed a lot since then, fortunately, for a lot of efforts, yours included. Um, but you enter this, really, what, that, what they said wasn't so untrue, correct? That's right. You're so true. But I also want to answer the question, you know, what was it like for me? When I first went into the system, they try to get you to click up. Right. With a gang. Yep. Right. You got to join a car. You right. have to join a car. You have to click up. And that was just something that I couldn't do. It's bad enough that I was in prison for something that I didn't do. Now I'm going to call home and say, hey, mom, guess what? I'm a crip. I'm a blood. I'm a four on five or whatever the case may be. Yep. I just couldn't do it. So I didn't click up. And of course, I was ostracized for a long time, and that affected my mental health, my self-esteem. There were times where they would open up for yard. I couldn't sit in certain rows because I wasn't part of a car. Sure. Segregation is alive and well. There were certain areas that I just couldn't go into. Right. And it was very difficult. So I went into what I would call this dark cave mentally. And I shut down. There was only a couple words that I uttered probably throughout the day. What's up? When someone asked me, you know, what I was in there for, I told him, look, I'm in here for murder. What else could I say? You know, in prison, you know, everybody is innocent. Right. You know, I didn't do it. Everybody wants to minimize their role. Sure. You know, and, and I also want to add that, you know, when in prison, something that I learned, respect is earned. Definitely. And there's a level of respect that is seen from a person who is innocent. You, you know, you released a certain vibe, an aura that other people, I think, tap into. Like you're around men for 24 hours a day. They know if you BSing or not. Right. They know 
they know if you are a gang member or not. You, you can't fool these men. So there was a narrow line that I had to walk every single day. There was a square that I stood on that represented who I believed that I was, an innocent man. And I stood on that square. I walked that line. And I didn't click up for 21 years. Wow. You know, in fact, when I first got into the adult prison, I remember there was a guy that came up to me when I was on a yard in DVI reception. And he came up to me, he said, youngster, I don't know how much time you got, but if you want to survive this, there's three things you should do. Don't fuck with punks, don't gamble, and don't click up. And I took that to heart. That was some real game. I took that to heart. Because once you do, there's no turning back. When, right. you, listen, if you do something in one yard, it's going to follow you For sure. to another yard and yeah, another right. yard. For life. Nah, real talk. So I, I'm curious, man, what, what did you do, you know, to utilize your time to fill up this time? You know what I mean? Because a lot of people, for some reason, feel like when we when we do this time behind these walls, we just twirling our thumbs and sharpening knives and just getting buff on the yard and stuff. I'm curious, man, for you, because first and foremost, I feel like that's an extremely bitter pill to swallow. Sure. You know, being in this setting, like I, I did time in prison. I did nine years and I also went down at 17, but I actually did it. You know, so like I accepted my consequences early on and, you know, I, I signed yeah. up for this to an extent. So right, like right. I had a different mind state when it came to, you know, enduring prison because I definitely put myself there and I understood that. So for yourself, you know, I'm just curious in response to that. Like, how did you feel your time? And were there other non-affiliates around you as well? Like, were you the only non-affiliate in New York? Because no. I know in the 90s, it was different. You it, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it was, it was different. Don't get me wrong. I was not a man on my own island. Okay. You know what I mean? You you had, there was a lot of people in there that was not affiliate, you know, but Definitely. again, I never clicked up. You know, I never became a crip, born fiber, blood, et cetera. You know, some of the things, I, I left the streets when I just got out of the 10th grade going into the 11th grade. Mm. So I had to graduate in prison. Same. So I had to educate myself. My sister was a school teacher. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is I would write letters to my sister and I would say, why don't you critique my writing? Wow. Critique my gram grammatics. So you didn't go through like any programs? No, I, I know did. programs were super I, limited, especially then, because they limited now. So I could only imagine then like where there was programs yeah, around. There was, there was definitely programs around. You know, okay. I did. That that was an enhancer for me. Right. You know, that because extra step. That extra step. Because, you know, in prison, you got to educate yourself. You got to teach yourself. Although the, the, the curriculum is provided, it's outdated. Right. In so many ways. So, you know, my family would send me books. I would write, et cetera, et cetera. My mother, for example, you know, my mother, I didn't see my mother for 21 years. Oh, my God. Because my mother was under the mindset that if her child is innocent, if she goes to see her child, her child should be coming home with her. So, yeah, I didn't understand that going through that trap time, but I understood it when I came home and I saw my mother for the first time in 20-some years. We had an in-depth conversation. But my mother and I, we developed this love language. And so what I would do is I would get a blank piece of paper and I would outline my handprint, you know, just to show my mom how much I've been growing. Mm -hmm. And then I would take that piece of paper, I would hold it to my chest, hug it real tight, and just shove it in an envelope. And so this was our love language over time. And it was very difficult. You know, I lost my dad, you know, a year to the date that I came home. And all I wanted my dad to see was me survive this madness, this nightmare and come out victorious. Unfortunately, he didn't, he didn't have that opportunity to see me do that. Well, the fact that you were separated from your family, your mother, and I sort of understand where she's coming from, but that's got to be hard for you to rationalize when you're sitting inside and like you want that human connection, right? Absolutely. You, you know, when, when you're, you know, in prison, you, it's just you especially when you're in the cell, on your rack. It's just you and your thoughts. Yep. And that's all that I had was me and my thoughts. And I had to figure out how I was going to get myself out of this. I got myself in this. My mother couldn't help me. My dad couldn't help me. My sisters couldn't help me. My brother couldn't help me. You know, and so I had to really look in the mirror and I had to confront that 17-year-old kid. And I had to ask 
the 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 pertinent question that everybody wanted to ask, dude, why did you confess to something that you didn't do? And I had to do my own personal research. And and what I realized is that when I was growing up, there was an episode where my parents decided to separate. And my mother had called all of us into the room and said that, you know, your father and I are going to be separated. I was devastated. And I remember going into the bedroom crying. And my sister came in after me. And I remember I told my sister what she wanted to hear to get that pressure off of me. And it stopped. So when I got into that pressurous situation with law enforcement for 25 hours, mm. I cracked under pressure. I'm telling you, I cracked under pressure. No parent knows what a child would do under pressure. You, you, you're going to hear this a lot of times. I would never confess to something that I didn't do. You don't know. Right. And but, I think especially being a 17-year-old kid, man, you know what I mean? Having the pressure of, like you said, adults first and foremost. We're we, we going to take just the cops and all that out of it because that is adding to it as sure, well. But no doubt. you got adults. You know, having a kid without guidance, without their parents, no, like, and, and I remember what it was like being 17 years old, you know, at the police station, and one of the cops took me to a closet, because <laughs> he was trying to get me to tell and do all this stuff, like, you see, we're in a closet, ain't nobody listening, like, just let me know so I can help you and all that, and I remember just that pressure alone, you know, like, man, this grown-ass man is sitting across yeah. from me in this damn closet, like, I, I just shut down. You know, sure. I got nothing to talk about. I got nothing to say. But for me, it just made me shut down. So I could only imagine. And, and, and again, I was actually guilty. I could only imagine if I didn't do something, sure. you know, and then 25 hours into that. Like, I, 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 in my opinion, I don't blame you. I feel like that's what's bound to happen. I, I don't I can't think of too many people that can actually endure that and not comply. You know what I mean? Because that's forcefully that's that, that, that they're, they're forcing that to an extent. I, I like to say that. That moment is when law enforcement kidnapped me. Legit. They kidnapped me for 25 hours. Definitely. That's a whole day plus an hour. My mother was under the impression that I was still at my friend Kevin's home. Wow. Think about that. You know, and so, you know, I had to grapple with this reality while incarcerated. I had to, con again, I had to confront this 17-year-old kid. Why did you do it? And then once I realized why I confessed to this crime that I didn't do, my life, my perceptive perception changed. You know, I'm a firm believer that identity produces destiny. How you see yourself today will ultimately determine who you will be tomorrow. And once I embraced that reality, my life began to change. You know, and now I'm, I'm, I, I just want to walk with you guys through those 21 years, you know, because I received a lot of backlash. When you go to the board, man, just tell them you did it. Tell them you did it. Well, if I would have did that, then I would have got myself deeper into a hole. Fast forward to my last parole hearing. I wrote out from start to finish a clear picture of how a 17-year-old kid was put in an adult situation, forced to make an adult decision that resulted in him being locked up for 21 years at the time I was a 38-year-old man. And the parole board, they took all of that into consideration. Mind you, I went 21 years with not one write-up. And so the parole board had difficulty comprehending how a 17-year-old kid could spend two decades in the system with such a pristine record. Which is jacket. definitely rare because you get write-ups for curtains, <clears throat> you get write-ups for out of bed, like like petty little stuff. So to go write-up free 100%, that is definitely, that that's rare. So... My explanation to the parole board is, look, I don't belong here. Therefore, I wasn't going to act like I need to be here. Mm. And so they took everything that I said into consideration and the parole board did something unexpected. They did something that that is what I would like to call an anomaly. They took my side. They took my side of the story rather than going with the district attorney's side. And they said, Mr. Dixon, we believe you. We believe your version of the events, which is why we believe that we are going to give you a date and find you suitable for parole. And that was October 17, 2011. Wow. 
Wow. That, that is amazing because, as you said, parole boards are very specific about taking uh, responsibility. Absolutely. Right? And you're taking responsibility because you were innocent, right? It wasn't like you weren't well, taking responsibility. Hey, Chris, watch. It's not just the responsibility. It's also the insight. Right. It's, I needed, like, you know, there was a time period you just mentioned in the opening. Like, there was a time period when no lifer was ever going home. They weren't even going to they, the board. They weren't even going to the board. That's right. They skip it, literally, by it's, choice. That's right. Like, because they knew. And so there was a shift. There was a shift in, way, in the way that the parole board was processing lifers. And that was with this landmark case, Lawrence. And Lawrence came out and said, you know what? If an individual has insight, it was a woman. If she has insight into her life crime, then more than likely... She understands or he understands why they did it and therefore they won't commit it again. So I had to get insight into why I was there. And that was me confronting that 17-year-old kid. So I gave the board insight into what happened to me at 17, which led to me being a 38-year-old man sitting before them. Wow. And, you know, I also want to add, you know, what? a lot of I, I have to add this too. a lot of people think that I should be mad at the system and law enforcement. I'm, I'm one of them. I'm not. I'm one of them. I'm, I'm, not. I'm mad. You Listen, know what I'm saying? I, I say this with conviction. I don't harbor any animosity towards the system or corrections because I know that it was a small group of people that had something to do with the injustice that I was served and they do not represent the masses. Look, I'm a runner. I have a runner friend who is in law enforcement. You know what I mean? I have another friend and, and we ride bikes together, you know. So if I was so caught up with despising law enforcement and corrections, I wouldn't have embraced these individuals as friends. They come to my house. We have birthday parties for kids, et cetera, et cetera. So, man, life goes on. Respect, I respect that, man. Real talk. And, and uh, the time has come, Chris. The time has come. Got to give my man his flowers, man. <laughs> Here we go. Real talk. So one thing we do on the last mile radio, man, we give flowers, man. And pretty much where that stems from, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, you know, people get the kind words, the acknowledgments, and quite literally the flowers after they pass away on the grave. So I want to give you your flowers while you can still smell them, man, because they are definitely well-deserved, bro. I got to give you your flowers on how you overcame your journey, how you responded to your journey, that that resilience that is that is so remarkable man to have that perception and that outlook in response to that injustice because I, I i definitely agree too i'm not like a cop hater or anything like that but i definitely hate oppression and i definitely hate injustices no you know what i mean and Absolutely. that infuriates me so like i'm definitely upset and mad by what happened but i definitely understand and respect you know your response and your perception for sure for no sure doubt. so gotta give you your flowers Thank man you. So i received that i smell them <laughs> for sure well, it's, it's not only that you have this mindset today where you're, uh, I, I find it hard because I get angry too, right? For real. Um, but, you're, but you're also turning that into a positive because, um, you know, you're working on initiatives that are helping people yes. that are going through situations that you went through. Correct. Um, I mentioned Jason at the top from mm -hmm. the Innocence Project, very mm -hmm. involved, and it really resonated when you said that about not being resentful or angry. I remember years ago, uh, I went to a, an event for the Instant Project, and they had 11 exonerees there, which was mind-blowing to me. I think all of them were on death row, I believe. Mm. And not one of them had anger or animosity. Yes, and that just blew my mind, right? That people can go through such oppression and such injustice and still be positive. So again, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to jump on that flowers for you and say, that's amazing. <laughs> can, can, I, can I add a little something? Real sure. Quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm only speaking as an individual. Mm -hmm. For me, I will lose so much more of my life being mad at the system. No doubt. Let me paint the picture. Just imagine holding a ball in water and trying to submerge that ball. Imagine how much energy you are using to keep that ball submerged. Let it go. Play with the ball. Yep. That's me. I want to enjoy life. I lost too many years to be fixated on, on, on something that has happened in the past. I'm in the present. I'm yep. trying to go into the future. That's such uh, that's, those are such strong words for everyone. For real. You know what I mean? 
people just in society today. Let it go. Right. right. So you have you're in a position now where you have a voice True. and you can have impact. So tell us what you're doing today, because it's very powerful. So when I, first of all, I am a vice chairman of the board for the anti-recidivism coalition. Congrats. Uh, you know, again, we all have a mutual friend in, 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 in this in this arena, Scott Budnick. Scott, is, Scotty Scott, B. Scott, you know what? I, I met Scott uh, by hop, happenstance. And as soon as we met, Scott asked me uh, six or seven years ago when I first met him. He was like, dude, do you want to go to Sacramento and tell people about your story? People in power, people who can make a change in, in legislation? I was like, absolutely. And so I embarked on this journey with Scott. And then I became this uh, poster child for juvenile Miranda rights. And so at the time, Jerry Brown was in office. And so we presented, along with Elizabeth Calvin from the Human Rights Watch, um, we presented a juvenile Miranda right bill package. And and basically what it says is that anytime a child um, is in a custodial situation, an attorney will be present and explain line by line what their rights are i.e. myself, if I would have understood my rights in that 25th hour, I'm sure that the situation would have been different. And so Jerry Brown agreed with this, with this bill and he signed it into law. Fast forward, he protect, that bill, he protected children, that bill protected children 16 years and under. And so he left office and then Newsom came in. And so we reintroduced the bill to Gavin Newsom. And then he agreed and signed off on that bill protecting children 18 years and under. And so now I'm on a national stage trying to get this California initiative package federalized so that it applies in every single state and not just California. Look, what happened to me, it's not just in California. This is happening in every single state. I'm not a unicorn. There are a lot of young men and women falsely confessing to crimes that they didn't do and they need to be protected at all costs. That's so powerful. And uh, it's needed, right? The, the challenge we have is that all states are different. Right. I think people True. don't realize there's a federal system that's only 10% of the incarcerated population. The majority are state to state, and right. you have to go to each state, right? That's right. And that's a challenge. So uh, fortunately, you know, uh, Governor Newsom taking that initiative, California having some juice, right? And being one of the largest populations of incarcerated folks, um, have some influence. So hopefully that will continue to grow. And, you know, the Innocence Project as well is a national program having some influence. So, you know, kudos to you for doing that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And stay tuned. We will be back shortly with the one and only Jerome Dixon right here on the Last Mile Radio, Sirius XM. This is The Last Mile Radio on Sirius XM. Now, Chris and E's conversation with criminal justice activist Jerome Dixon continues. It's to my understanding there's some other things you got going on as law as well, right? Would you want to speak towards that? It's, it's a case going on right now. And how, how can people how can people help? For the people listening right now, how can they get involved and be moved to action? You know what? You could call your, your state representative. And tell them how these laws affect you in so many ways, whether it be that, you know, you have a, a child under the age of, of 18 or you have a niece or a nephew. This applies to everybody, you know, just to the parents out there. You know, just think, you know, in terms of me being your child. Think about, you know, me being your child in an interrogation room for 25 hours. What would you want your child? What kind of protection would you want your child to have? You definitely don't want them, their rights not to be administered. You don't want them to confess to a crime they definitely didn't do. So this applies to all parents out there. Well, that's, I mean, really, it's, uh, you, you experience that too. And I think that, you know, parents need to be, really understand what the issues are and be aware. Definitely. Absolutely. I agree 100 percent. I think um, this is something like you said, unfortunately, you know, unicorn, you know what I mean? Even looking back, um, you know, in, in the late 80s with the exonerated five, That's you right. know what I mean? It, I, I see a lot of similarities there on Very how that similar. was handled. You yeah, know what sure, I mean? Yeah, so sure. this this is something I feel definitely we need to take a stand. 
You know what I mean? Like you said, people need to get empathetic and put themselves in their shoes. What would you want for your own kids? No doubt. So definitely, I I want to I want to stand on this soapbox <laughs> and encourage everybody to get involved for sure, for sure. Use your voice, use your power. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, it may sound crazy, but I swear I believe this wholeheartedly. We can change the world forever if we come together. No I doubt. promise you, I really believe that, and I think that's a, a step in the right direction to do so for sure. That's right. So on the lighter side, <laughs> you're a very fashionable guy. <laughs> this is true. And you started sort of that focus on fashion while you were still inside. You know what? So when I was inside, uh, I would go to the law library. I would go to the library and I would pick up like these GQ magazines and I would just thumb through the pages. And, you know, I found a lot of hope in that because I was like, you know, one day I want to dress like this. I want to be like that. And that was my little speck of hope at the end of my dark tunnel. And so I began to fantasize, you know what I mean? And, you know, it, it was, it was, it was a, it was a, it was understood on the yard that every time you had the newest GQ, Vogue, whatever the case may be, magazine that came out, put it to the side for JD. <laughs> and so I would, you know, it started out first, I would rip out the cologne you know, little cologne cards, you know what I mean? Take it back to the sale, put it on a paper clip, put it in a vent because it would make the room smell good. Right. But let me go a little. So, you know, um, little did I know there was one guy in particular that I would always see in these magazines, John Pearson, mm -hmm. the first male supermodel. And so, like I said, little did I know that I was a big fan of his, a follower. And when I came home, I met this guy. Oh, that's why. That's a trip. I met this guy and, you know, I did an interview with him and I put on some of his suits and it was just amazing, you know, walking down this road with a guy that, you know, I only knew about through, you know, pictures, you know, in these magazines. And here it is. I'm sitting side by side, you know, being tailored, being dressed by this guy. And you know what? It just goes to show, you know, when you are committed to uh, a path, a journey. You know what I mean? And you stay committed to it. You will get to your finish line. It's crazy you say that because uh, we've had this sort of as a uh, renewed theme or a theme with some of the folks we've talked to. Like we had Shaka Sangur. Mm -hmm. I know him very well. Yeah. Shaka spent many years in the shoe in solitary and his goal was to be a best-selling author and meet Ofer and be on Super Soul Sunday. He did both. So the fact that you had this vision and you were able to accomplish that, there is something about you know, positive messages to yourself and living out that dream. And you're an example of that. No doubt. You know, you mentioned that a lot of guys that are locked up, they listen to this, you know, and my message to these guys that are still trapped in time is what I say. Mm. You know what? Find your little speck of light at the end of your tunnel and you go to it one step at a time and you will get there. Trust me, I'm a, I'm a living example. You have living examples in this room. Yep. You have living examples in this world, in society. You probably walk past them all the time. You know, go to your spec, go to your light at the end of the, in the, at the end of your tunnel. Definitely. And to piggyback off that real quick too, I, I, I'm a firm believer, man, when it comes to like, like visualization and manifesting stuff, right? Like the belief is a huge part in it for sure, for sure. But it, it's also the actions that follow from that belief. You know what I mean? I think that's what really makes it manifest. Like you got to be convicted for sure. You got to really believe that, you know, it's going to happen and that's part of manifesting it. But you know, those, those actions come from the belief. If I believe, you know, that I can be a star in sports, for instance, I'm going to really be in that gym because I believe that I'm going to make it. You know what I mean? So now my actions is following the belief, which is going to lead to that in the in, in that belief, the energy that we emanate from that only amplify, you know, that energy that we deposit into what I'm going to call the ether. You <laughs> feel me to make it come into our existence. So it, it's, it's science behind this, y'all. Oh, no. It get deep. It get deep. What's well, the whole Ted Lasso effect, <laughs> believe, right? That part. And, you know, as you know, in all the last mile classrooms across the country, there's a sign. It says believe in the process. Believe in the process. Everyone. Definitely. So before we, we go out, we love to ask one question. Sure. Um, and it's a difficult question to answer, but um, if there's one thing that you would change in the justice system, and you're in the process of doing that now, so maybe it's what you're working on today, what would that be? You know, I'm going to keep it simple. 
treat kids like kids. Hmm. Wow. That Come was on, something man. that was not a topic of conversation when I got arrested at 17. From the moment that they put the handcuffs on me, they treated me like an adult. I even went through, a, through the system. Even though I was a child, they tried me as an adult for a crime I didn't do. Treat kids like kids. Protect them as kids. Man, you can relate to that, E, huh? I definitely can relate to that, man. Again, going down at 17, um, literally when they took me into custody, I, I want to say three out of like the four officers told me they was going to kill me. I, and mind you, my little cousin at that time just got murdered by the police. They shot him like 17 times, James Revere. And this was like months before. So I really thought it was over. Like I, I 100% thought it was over. I remember when they came and put their knee on my back, like they all was looking around like real shady. And one cop kept telling the other one, like, you ready? Like, do it, do it, do it. You ready? So I'm like, damn, I'm going to die. Like, it's a wrap. You know what I mean? But the treatment that I got. From that moment on to when they threw me in the car to when they took me to the hospital to be identified to when they took me uh, into the station, everything, it definitely was as an adult. And I, too, got tried as an adult from the jump. So I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, man. Treat kids like kids. Treat them like kids. Yeah. Well, again, that message you're taking across the country is going to help so many people. And I know it's going to be successful with the folks you have behind you. You know, uh, your your story, obviously, no, we know Scott Budnick, he has a Scotty lot of juice. Um, uh, but we really appreciate you telling that story today. Very much appreciated. And I know the folks inside will appreciate that, too. Thank you. To the folks inside, you know, and it's, it's people out here in the world that's really fighting for you. Definitely. Stay up. And seriously, man, I, I got to thank you, too, man. Seriously. And got to keep, you're going to have a bouquet by the end of this one. <laughs> you feel me? Got to continue to give you your flowers, man, for the work that you're continuing to do, man. Seriously, it's making serious impacts. And I, I just want to thank you again for being present. I say it all the time, man. Presence is priceless. So thank you so much for blessing us with your presence, for your vulnerability, for sharing your journey. You feel me? It's extremely impactful, extremely insightful and motivational. So it's, I'm motivated. You, you know you know what I mean? That, that, that. That, believe it or not, one of the takeaways for me from your story is like you said about that ball. I'm going to go ahead and play with the ball versus trying to keep it underwater. You know what I mean? That's taking sure. a lot of energy for sure. So I just want to thank you, man, for sharing this with us. So serious. I received it. Chris. It just went down. Oh my god! Talk about raining game. I, I, I still, I, I'm still trying to grasp it all. <laughs> yeah, what's amazing to me? I mean, Jerome is such a thoughtful guy, such amazing constitution to be able to endure 21 years in prison without committing a crime, going to the board multiple times, being denied, but finally, someone listened and the board admitted that he was an innocent man. That is truly something special, and. He's not angry. He's not. He's looking forward. He's like, I'm not going to waste time with looking back in the past. I'm looking forward. And he's doing things that are going to help others. You know, he was able to pass Bill 395 in California that actually requires that you have representation. It started out with 15 or 16-year-olds. Now they moved it to 18-year-olds. So anybody oh, okay. who is who is underage is required to have representation. In his case, he was by himself for 25 hours and he was coerced into a guilty plea. That's not going to happen again in California. And he's taking that across the country to make sure it doesn't happen to others. And that is incredible to be that that right there is, in my opinion, the epitome of turning pain into power. He definitely epitomizes turning pain into power to be able to endure that experience right there. To, that, and, and we're talking about such a traumatic experience and now lessen the chances to a high degree of that happening to somebody else. That's really turning your pain into power right there. And then, like you said, to not hold on to the anger. That is incredible. Because I'm a person that understands what it felt like to hold on to anger. And it takes a lot out of you because it's heavy. It's heavy on you. When you let some of that go, it just makes life so much more easier. But it's so much easier said than done. So for him to successfully do that in such, a, a, again, such an intense experience of enduring prison the way that he did. You know what I mean? That's just incredible to now move in a degree to make sure that or move in a direction. I mean, to make sure that, you know, that's something that's not repeated. That's powerful right there. 
Yeah, and uh, again, he's working state by state to see if these new initiatives can be passed because every state's different, but it's really causing harm. I mean, we talk about, you know, plea bargaining as a rule is destructive, right? I mean, you've got so many people who are are given that option, which in my mind is not a great option. Take a deal or go to trial and risk, you know, um, a longer sentence. And there's a lot of threatening that goes on within the system about that. Um, But in his case, he was coerced into that guilty plea and he had a plea plea bargain on top of that. Um, and that plea bargain was changed. You talk about he was given right. one deal as a juvenile, and then when he became an adult, he was given another deal, which was a lot longer. Right. That was crazy. That would. And again, let, let's let's go back to not being angry, right? <laughs> to have to go through that and not be angry for them to give you a deal, your mindset on one thing, and they're like, "Nope, psych," <laughs> and then they just give you something completely different and still not be angry, like. That is definitely inspirational. That makes me want to definitely try to watch my anger. If somebody can manage their anger to that degree, that makes me want to be better. I'm going to be all the way real. That makes me want to try harder, (laughs) knowing that that's possible. Uh, Also, he's a real styling guy. When he was inside, he would get every copy of GQ. And when he walked in the studio, he is definitely living He was fly. He was fly. Definitely. He was fly, for sure. Definitely. He was suited and booted. He definitely <laughs> was, most definitely. That's why he, he had drip, as we say, for sure. That he did. <laughs> that he did. Well, it was definitely uh, inspiring to talk to him. I know he's going to be doing a lot of great things because he is now empowered with a great story. He's already got it done in California. He's going to be doing it, uh, you know, as he as he goes across the country. Um, but we really uh, want to amplify his story. Any, any way we can help, for sure, to amplify that story, because it's going to help so many, many people in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's what we do. You know what I mean? That's what we do. And, and, and what I mean by that is empower the voices of a silenced community. And I feel like the justice impacted and system impacted communities, you know, across across the world for real, but especially in the nation, I feel have been a silenced community. Yeah. So to have the opportunity to empower and uplift those voices, I, I you know, now we're giving ourselves some flowers. <laughs> there you for go. Because sure. it's, it, it's needed for real. With that said, we got to take it out. It's about that time. And speaking of flowers, Chris, speaking of flowers, you know at this time, man, what we do, I got to make sure I give you your flowers, my dude. You always show up and show out. Mr. Consistent, for sure. So I got to give you your flowers. Thanks, man. And back at you. Absolutely. And I'm going to accept my flowers. And speaking of flowers, we got to give you your flowers. You who tuned in to rock with us. Thank you so much for rocking with us. Y'all know I say it all the time. Presence is priceless. So thank you so much for being present. I hope you learned something and soaked up some game today. And we would love to hear from you. We want to hear what you like. We want to hear what you don't like. We want to hear what you want to hear. Let us know. Be sure to tap in at thelastmileradio.org. And if you want to hear this show or any show, download the Sirius XM app. Go download it. I'm Maserati E. And I'm Chris Redlitz. And this is The Last Mile Radio. On Sirius XM. No lie. I, I've been on a journey for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I've been on a journey for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I'm paving the road to success. Hey, I'm paving the road to the best. Wait, I'm paving the road to success. Hey, I'm paving the road to the best. Wait, no lie to the best ways. To increase the success rate Define odds against us even when it's unexpected Changing the world by changing the way we view the world It's all perspective 